Well, a few years ago, um, Clayton Christensen, a professor at Harvard Business School, came out with a book, a best-selling book called How Will You Measure Your Life? Christensen had been an entrepreneur, started a company and sold it, and then uh, he was hired by Harvard as a professor, moved back to Cambridge, and while he was living in Cambridge as a professor, he said, things changed, so now he says, I was there for all of the reunions every summer. For the, for the business school graduates. And he said, I came to realize after a couple summers that many of them were living very, very unsuccessful, unpleasant lives. He said, now professionally, they had often achieved great success, power, not just tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. He said, but they had cycled through uh, multiple marriages. They were estranged from their children. They didn't have friends. And he says, they had very unpleasant lives. And this caused him to reflect on what was going on, and he came to the conclusion after a a while that they actually were reaping what they had sown, that their life was the result of a bunch of decisions that they had made. And so he began uh, to teach current MBA students to apply the strategic planning tools he had been instructing them to use on companies to apply those to their own lives. And uh, this had sort of profound effects on many students. And so Christensen, who uh, writes as a Mormon, he has a co-written book uh, with an atheist and, uh, and, a, and a woman who describes herself as somewhere between the two. But Christensen goes on to write a Harvard Business Review article that becomes the most frequently uh, reprinted Harvard Business Review article in the history of the, of the review. And, uh, and then this book comes out that just sort of goes in every direction. Now, I, I would say this. Um, what he is advocating in applying some of these strategic planning tools uh, to our lives is, while slightly unorthodox has a lot of overlap with what Solomon recommends that we do in the book of Proverbs. Today we're going to talk about wisdom. Now, before we do, um, I I just want to step back and and do a few things. First of all, I want to remind you where we've we've come from. Last week we launched a series and I made four points. Number one, that God is for you. That there is a gracious, loving, all-powerful creator God who is leaning in to you, and he wants you to lean in to him, right? He is for you. Whoever you are and whatever you've done, right, God will meet you where you are, and he wants to be a bigger part of your life. And, and this is not because you're wonderful or I'm wonderful. It's because he's gracious and loving. And so he will meet us where we are. He wants more of you. But the second point was there are obstacles that get in the way of this. And some of these are consistent across time. They have to do with our own sin and brokenness, greed, pride, envy, all that kind of stuff. But some of them are unique to the moment or the culture uh, of a particular group of people. And I argued that, that we're living in a unique time, that it's a bit of a circus out there. That there's all kinds of activity and noise and all kinds of distractions. None of, well few of which are very important. They're just all in your face, and it's big, and it's loud. And if we're not careful, it can carry us along, and we end up being people who have all kinds of of insights across the spectrum, but 
but it's just the mile wide and an inch deep. We are shallow people. So I said, point number three, we have to very deliberately and consciously cultivate a relationship with God. Right? We, have to, we have to be mindful of developing, listening to, going through the habits and practices that allow us to have an ongoing, moment-by-moment, seven-day-a-week relationship with God. We, we have to go deep. And then uh, the last point that I said is uh, doing this, right? Developing the kind of inner life that's going to allow us to shape our outer world as opposed to being shaped, as opposed to just, you know, being carried downstream by the current. In order to do this, we, we have to do some things that are hard. It, it's going to take effort. Now, uh, there is another way, by the way, that you can become a deep person, and that is to just suffer profoundly. But given the option, most people don't want to sign up for that path. So uh, I want to explore what it looks like to gain the wisdom that we need to move forward and to develop some depth in our life. Now here's, before I do that, here's what I, I need to say, because uh, we're, we're in the Old Testament, we're in the book of Proverbs. The Old Testament uh, and series out of the Old Testament tend to be a, a lot of what we would call law as opposed to the gospel, or a lot of advice, a lot of rules. And I, I am just very aware. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I've, I've written this series with the understanding that I'm speaking mostly to people who have, or Christ followers who have made that decision. But nonetheless, I'm just aware that there's... There, this could be short on grace, and I don't want that to be that way. Many of you stumble in here. Your life is hard, and you're beat up, and the last thing you need is some clown like me to get up here and say, okay, here's another 12 things you've got to do, or it's not going to work. And so I just want to be really clear about how significant grace is. And it's significant on two fronts. First of all, of course, we are saved by grace. Put the spectrum up here. You've, you've seen this... Um, if you've been here, you've seen this many times, right? We're all spiritual beings. We're somewhere on this spectrum. We've been formed or malformed in various ways by the things that we do, the things that we think about, the things that we say. And, and uh, we cannot be at negative five, metaphorically, as far from God as possible, or positive five fully in his presence, this side of eternity. But Jesus is pretty clear that when we die, we're headed to one of those, one of those poles, Right? And, and we start in negative numbers because of our sin. We cross over from negative to positive numbers. We, we transition from darkness to light, from, from, from death to life. We, we, are, we are adopted into the family of God. We're, we're born again. We're, we're reconciled with God. This all happens as a result of God's work. Ephesians 2, 8, Paul writes, For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. No one can boast. It's not. I just want to be really, really clear. We do not enter into a relationship with God because we follow the advice so well that God is obligated in some way, you know, to welcome us in. That's not it at all. When it comes to grace, there are people who know they don't get it. There are people who think they get it but don't get it. There are people who can give a technically correct answer but still don't get it. And then there are people who are just at least occasionally crippled, right, struck down with, with amazement at, at the fact that God does all of this for us, okay? So we're saved by grace through faith. It's the result of Christ. 
his life, his, his death that, that changes everything. Now, many of you get that, but here's part of the reason for this series. Many of you sort of cross over and you get into positive numbers and you stall and you stay there. And so you need to understand since this whole series, but you also need to hear today that growing in Christ-likeness, becoming more like Jesus, right, is also a result of God's grace. So we, uh, Augustine famously said, when it comes to growing, we cannot do it on our own, and God will not do it on his own. It's a partnership. But the kind of heart transformation, life transformation that we're after is ultimately a work of God. We cannot engineer this. So I've got a different illustration that, that I just ran across. I, I'm actually working on two additional talks. They're going to come later on. They're supplements to this deep series. One of them is on grace. And so in, in my work this week, I ran across this, this other uh, chart. Can you put that up? So effectively, we're, we're going down the path, and we come to uh, this point of conversion. So conversion, whatever you want to refer to it as, there is a moment, a Christ follower reaches a moment where they realize, oh, God is bigger, better, holier than I am, and I am actually broken. And so that that recognition leads to repentance, it leads to confession, and then the the thing that bridges the gap between our, our sinfulness and God's holiness is the cross of Christ his death in our place. And there's a whole spiritual, metaphysical transaction that takes place. You know, our sin goes to Christ. His righteousness is credited to our account. Paul writes about this various places. And so the, the cross is the bridge. So here's the point. The longer we walk with Christ, what's supposed to happen is our understanding of who God is continues to grow. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. At the same time, though our behavior may be improving, right, our understanding of how broken we are also continues to grow. So you talk to somebody who's, who you think is the holiest person you've ever met, and they're 80 years old, and they've been, they've been following God for the last 70 years, and you think, oh, they are so holy and righteous, and you ask them, you must be really close to God. The response you're going to get is, oh, uh, not at all. Uh, yes, I'm close to God, but not the way you think, right? I am not a good person, because their understanding of how holy and awesome God is has expanded, and their understanding of their own brokenness has expanded. And consequently, grace has to expand. And if it doesn't, if your understanding of the grace of God doesn't expand, then what happens is one of two things. Either you're going to pretend that you're better than you are, right? You're going to put on an act and act like, oh, yeah, things are working well. I'm I'm a good person. Or you're going to try and perform to sort of close the gap between where you think grace stops working and, and, and where God is. And there's a lot of pretending, and there's a lot of performing. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you, this series is designed to sort of lay out a path that comes from God. And it, and it is a path that will work. But you just have to understand, 
We don't do these things. We don't head down this path. We don't discipline ourselves for godliness. Out of this goal that God is going to love us because we're going to get good enough, it's from the platform of God's grace and acceptance and love. Right? We get, okay, it's not about me at all. He's good enough that I'm in. And, and it's awesome and it's amazing and the promises that I've been given are incredible. And out of that platform of being loved and, and forgiven and unconditionally accepted and realizing God knows the worst about me and he's still for me. I don't have to pretend. He knows. From that liberating position, we are then motivated to do these things, not to earn God's favor but in a response to God's love and graciousness. So, I just don't want you leaving feeling like, oh my goodness, I got another 22 things I got to do in order for God to love me, and I'm already beaten down by life. That's not the way this works. So, from a platform of grace, we now look uh, to this whole invitation to move forward and to become more like Christ, which spiritual growth is always its own reward. (laughs) If you grow to become more like Christ, life works better even when life on the outside doesn't appear to be working, right? But as we draw closer to God, there's more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Life is working better. So we're talking about how to move in that direction, how to become deep, and and the, the premise, the platform here is the book of Proverbs, and today's topic is wisdom. Proverbs 4, 7 states, uh, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. So the top of your to-do list is this, figure some things out, gain understanding of what actually matters and what doesn't, of what's important. You need an overview. So this is Proverbs 4, 7. Now here's what we have to understand. The Bible defines wisdom in a particular way, and it may be different than what you're thinking. So I want to give you, to start, I want to give you four aspects or characteristics of wisdom. Number one, it's practical, okay? So uh, when it comes to wisdom, it's not what you know, it's what you do. Forrest Gump, uh, Tom Hanks in that movie, plays this character has a very low IQ. But his mom keeps saying to him, right, stupid is as stupid does. You may not be intellectually bright, but if you make right decisions, you're not a stupid person, right? Well, the opposite applies as well. You can be remarkably bright. You can have a high IQ, lots of degrees, Ivy League diplomas. You can have all that stuff. And, biblically speaking, be a fool, Right? Because it's not about IQ. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of really, really bright fools out there. We meet them all the time. You could memorize the entire book of Proverbs, which is all about wisdom, and be a fool if you're not applying this. Wisdom, biblical wisdom, is godly character in action. Okay? No action, no wisdom. You know the right thing to do, but don't do it. You're not wise. Okay? Biblical wisdom is not intellectual acumen that leaves 
application as, uh, as extra credit for the overachievers. It's not, biblical wisdom is not sage religious advice. It is godly character being lived out in real life. And this, by the way, is, it's very Jewish in its orientation. So the Jews were very practical. The Greeks, they were very, they were, they were in love with, with learning and thinking. So they give us philosophy, philosophy technically, two Greek words, phileo, one of the words for love, you've heard of agape, eros, phileo is another Greek word for love, and, and then sophia is the word for wisdom. So phileo, sophia, philosophy, uh, technically philosophy is the love of wisdom, but it's not the love of wisdom as the Greeks explored it. They were just sort of in love with thinking and ideas, and the more bizarre and conceptual and abstract, the more interesting they found them. So, in contrast to the Greeks, the Hebrew, one of the Hebrew words that Solomon will use for wisdom is the word for skill, right? It's very practical stuff. So, uh, point number one, uh, Wisdom is practical. Point number two, wisdom is moral. So it's not just that you got to have street smarts or common sense, right? A, a wise person will have street smarts and common sense. But there's another aspect of this which goes to goodness, which goes to holiness. And, and we don't, um, today, in, in many circles, certainly in higher, uh, higher ed, there is no sense of moral knowledge, right? Everybody's sort of free to believe whatever they want to believe. There's not a code of ethics that is being taught to people. If you take an ethics class at the university, it's all legal, <laughs> right? You're not interested in a moral issues. You're interested in what is legal as defined by the law. And famously, a few years ago, uh, Richard Levin, the professor, uh, the president of Yale, welcomed the in- intro class, the freshman class to Yale, and he said, uh, welcome, we have lots of questions for you. We don't have any answers. Right? In other words, after, right, after 800 years or 2,000 years or 3,000 years of, of higher education, if we go all the way back to the, to the Greeks, um, we haven't figured anything out. Right? We, we can't tell you actually how to live. All we can do is help you get a job, right? So moral knowledge today is, is believed to be sort of whatever you want it to be, okay? Not according to Scripture, right? There is, there, are, there is truth, and it's rooted in God's character. And if you ignore God, then you cannot be a wise person. If you, if you rebel against God or just, or just passively dismissive of God, you cannot be a wise person. You're a fool, because, as a matter of fact, it's the high watermark of being a fool. Because what is most important, you are ignoring. So um, we have to understand biblical wisdom is, uh, is all about morality. And, and this is one of, the, one of the common refrains in the book of Proverbs. Almost a chorus, if this thing were being sung, would be, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I had problems understanding this passage for quite a while because I'd hear people say, fear in this context means awe. 
It doesn't mean be scared of God. It means awe. Well, there are, there are instances, there are, there are passages where if you put awe in for fear, it makes good sense. But there are other passages that if you put awe in for fear, it doesn't make any sense. And I, and I sort of struggled with this for a long time. And then uh, just recently, sort of a blinding case of the obvious, you know, I was just struck by this. Well, it all depends on our relationship with God. If we have a good relationship with God, if we've been forgiven, if we've been reconciled, then, yeah, it's probably right to translate fear into awe. But if not, right, if we are, if we are estranged from God, then fear is the right word. And, and that's an unpopular idea today, but it's a common idea. It's certainly what Jesus would say. Matthew 10, 28 is a horrifying statement by Jesus. Do not fear him who is able to destroy your body, but unable to destroy your soul. Instead, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. He's talking about God. Fear God. It's a shocking statement to, to modern sensibilities. But, but it depends upon our relationship with God. If you know God, if you are reconciled with God, if you're at peace with God, then awe is the right understanding there. Although I will say this also. Our understanding of awe needs to be upgraded because uh, we, don't, we don't have enough awe. Occasionally, awe is uh, sort of awful or horrifying in a way that, that we can reconcile pretty quickly. But I think the disciples give us an, an illustration of this. Jesus tells them to get in the boat with him, and they're going to go across the Sea of Galilee, and they get out there, and there's a big storm. They think, well, they're going to die. And meanwhile, Jesus is famously asleep in the front of the boat. And so they wake him up and they go, you don't care about us. We're all going to die. And Jesus looks around and then says, right, you know, be still. And the storm stops. And this is, this is clearly part, in this Luke series, we covered this with the passage on called Amazed, that series on Amazed. It was just another in, in an example of the ways that Jesus had power over sickness and power over death and power over evil and power over nature, right? He's not just another teacher, right? So this passage is, is there to, to just to give us that illustration. But here's the takeaway. What do the disciples do? Right, as soon as he calms the storm, they don't go, great, we're saved, we're going to be, we're going to be okay, They look at each other and they say, who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him, right? They go from being scared about the storm to suddenly being scared about Jesus. Like, oh my goodness, this is bigger than we understood. He's more significant than we previously got. I've got to recalibrate my sense of awe when I am around him. So, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. There's a moral aspect to wisdom. Third point. um, Wisdom wins. So, point number one, wisdom is practical. Point number two, wisdom is moral. Point number three, wisdom wins. Or wisdom works. Um, It's the way the world works. And as it, if, 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 if we follow wisdom, we're headed down a path that is likely, not always, but will likely lead to flourishing. Because it is, it is what is hardwired into God's character. Now, last, 
Last week, I, uh, I introduced four characters in the book of, of uh, Proverbs. I've, I've got a chart to, uh, to help illustrate this today. So let's put this chart up. And, and basically, here's, here's what you need to see here. At the bottom uh, are the naive and simple. So the, the first set of characters we find in Proverbs are the simple, sort of the, the clueless. They're kids. They don't understand how life works. They don't, they're not deliberately going out to do something wrong. They don't understand how life works. So you've got the naive or the simple. Uh, to the left, then, you have the fool. Okay, so the fool has, has sort of found themselves on the left side of that line. Okay, so they're now making conscious decisions to head in the wrong direction. Proverbs 1 describes the fool, and it says um, that the fool is somebody who, um, who doesn't... The fool is, is somebody who delights in ignorance. Proverbs 7 makes a contrast between someone who's naive and simple and someone who's a fool in reference to temptation. So if you've been reading through the book of Proverbs, you might know the first eight chapters has this... Um, there's two women... One is, is uh, they both sort of, well, there's two women. One is a, called a queen or, the, or a wife, a mother. She's a, a woman of honor. The other one is a harlot or a prostitute. And this woman represents wisdom, and this woman represents a fool. And, or excuse me, what represent, yeah, foolishness. And so this woman, uh, as a prostitute, is trying to seduce a naive person. And it says, as you read through that in, in Proverbs 7, it says, you know, that the naive at the simple is being led astray without any understanding of what's going on. Whereas the fool knows exactly what's going on, right? And the fool is out on the street corner waiting for the prostitute to stop by. It is clear and is making that decision to head down that path. So there are degrees of foolishness, which leads to the third character in the far left-hand corner. You have the mocker or the scorner. And this is someone who's, who's actually sort of moved out of foolishness towards evil and is trying to lead other people to follow that path. And then the fourth character you have in the book of Proverbs is the wise person. Someone, and they're on the right, someone who's trying to, to embody godly character and live that out in action. Now, if you read through the book of Proverbs uh, a number of times, which I recommend, uh, a few things begin to emerge. First of all, you realize that if you just count the references uh, between naive fool, uh, scorner, and, and, uh, and wise, the, the implication would be that we're all fools because there's a lot more counsel addressed to the fools than is addressed to the naive or the mocker or the wise. A second thing that you see is that um, Solomon doesn't have a lot of hope that a fool is going to change their course. Proverbs 27, um, in Proverbs 27, verse 22, he says, Though you grind fools in a mortar, grinding them for, like grain with a pestle, you will not remove their folly from them. So, this chart is, is designed to show that there are degrees of foolishness. Here's what you need to understand. Uh, every day you head further down the path of being a fool, the less likely it is that you turn this around. 
And that's just true of whatever we do. Right? Whatever you do today, good or bad, right? it's more likely you will do the same thing tomorrow. It's just easier. It's easy. If you, if you do the right thing, it's going to be easier to do the right thing tomorrow. If you do the wrong thing, it'll be easier to do the wrong thing tomorrow. Now, you can, you can, please hear this, no matter how far down this path you are to the left, you can turn this around. Every day, people who are, who are living a life full of addictions decide to break that addiction and they're successful. Every day, people who are headed down the wrong path decide they're going to make a course adjustment and go radically in the other direction, and they're successful. It happens all the time, but it's harder than it would be if you do it sooner. And Solomon is not particularly optimistic that, uh, that we can turn this thing around. It's hard. And then the third thing you get as you read through the book of Proverbs a number of times is uh, you realize... Solomon is principally concerned with the naive, right, with the simpleton. And, and I sort of thought he was trying to, you know, get the attention of the fool. I now come away saying, no, he's, he's desperate to say to the simple, right, look, you're going to make the wrong decision and you're going to get hurt just like the fool. Because sin is ultimately stupid, right? Sin is ultimately self-destructive behavior. If we do something wrong, it's not that God is looking down to see us getting angry or looking at internet porn or whatever it is, stealing from your boss, whatever it is that you're doing. It's not that God is looking down to catch somebody in sin so that he can smite them in some way. No, God is a loving, gracious parent who, like parents here, look at their kids making bad decisions and go, No, don't do that because you will get hurt. (laughs) Maybe not right now, but the bad thing about doing a bad decision is that it probably leads to another bad decision, right? And you're headed down the wrong path, and I don't want you to go down that path because you're going to get hurt. And that's 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 that's, that's what God is saying. And so there's this desperation on the part of Solomon to reach the simple and to say, get wisdom, right? Run after God. Whatever it costs you, gain understanding. Because as long as you remain naive, you are at risk, just like the fool, of doing things that are ultimately going to be painful. The um, The fourth thing that I'll mention here about wisdom, the fourth aspect, is that it requires long term thinking. Uh, Uh, I don't mean by this that if you're wise, you'll save for retirement. Although, if you're wise, you will save for retirement. But I mean, if you're wise, you will live today in light of the fact that you're going to live forever. Right? The next 20 years are not as important as the next 10,000. Right? You want to live today in light of the fact that we're going to live forever. And we make decisions now based on the fact that we're going to live forever. So last week, uh, Psalm 90, right? Moses' prayer, uh, where he said, teach me to number my days. And this ties in with the whole art that we were just looking at, the memento mori, right? Remind me that I'm going to die. Because we live in a culture that just keeps trying to keep that completely out of, off the horizon, right? We're trying not to think about that. And no, there's wisdom in thinking about that. And in Hebrews 11, we see the same thing. Moses is, is, 
is uh, called by God and he's wise because he's looking beyond a city in this world. He's looking beyond to, to the ultimate work of God. So part of being wise means we're looking at our life and we're living today in light of the fact that we're going to live forever. Well, um, there are other aspects uh, of wisdom that are worth commenting on. If you read through uh, the whole Bible, at some point you, the light will likely go on and you'll realize that Jesus is wisdom personified. Right? That just as Jesus is the Word of God, Jesus is God's wisdom. Right? Which not only means he's the wisest person who ever lived. Not just in a spiritual sense, but in a practical sense. Jesus is the smartest, wisest person who ever lived. It also would suggest that the wisest thing that we can do is to follow him. And not just, I'm going to place my faith in Christ for my sins to be forgiven, but follow him in the life that he's calling us to live. Right? It's a radical call. But, but that is what wisdom would look like. So, uh, there are a lot of things that, that, that we could look at from the book of Proverbs. You see that wisdom uh, means we've got to be self-aware. and Wisdom means we've got to be open to take advice. I mean, there's, there's a number of things. I, I, I want to leave, I want to I review three, and then I want to leave you with some things to do. First of all, I want to be sure as we move forward that you understand this definition. Wisdom is godly character in action. It's being applied to your life. It is living it out. Secondly, I want you to understand that this is going to take, um, well, secondly, I want you to understand that we need wisdom. That's the Proverbs 4, 7, right? Get wisdom. Whatever you do, get wisdom. Uh, In order to be deep, in order to have a chance in this culture, we need some depth. We need wisdom. And the third thing I want you to hear is that it's hard to get, which is why it's, uh, I think it's relatively rare. In an ultimate irony and tragedy, Solomon principally wrote the book of Proverbs for his own sons. And Rehoboam, one of his sons, is the classic fool in the Old Testament. I mean, he's just, he, he completely ignores the counsel of the elders. And he loses the kingdom that he's been given uh, right out of the gate. And uh, not that we sort of disdain Rehoboam. If we don't have safeguards in our life, if we don't develop character, sin is always the more attractive option than wisdom, right? If we don't, we will default to sin, just like Rehoboam did, if we don't cultivate the kind of safeguards and character and other things that we need to go a different path. So, how do we do that? How do we get wisdom? What specifically would that look like? Well, there's four things that the Bible tells us to do. Number one, I've already mentioned a couple times, that is, contemplate your own mortality. Okay. So we should contemplate our own mortality. The three that I'll, I'll exp- expand upon, number one, is that we need, to, uh, we need to seek God, and in specific, we need to understand that he's given us a textbook to that end, and that we need to, we need to, to default, we need to prioritize uh, this book, because it is through this book principally that God speaks to us. So we need to study the book. And we're, we're, there's a, a series of things that we're going to be offering in conjunction with this series called Going Deeper. And one of them is how to spend time with God. How do you spend time with God every day? And so October 11th at the Lake Forest campus, the 12th for both 
Crossroads and, and uh, Highland Park, we're going to have uh, a workshop to that end because we've got to go down this path. Secondly, um, the second thing that we need to do is we need to, we need to pursue wise friendships. So in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 13, we're told that whoever walks with the wise will be wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. So your friends, the people you hang out with, can help you raise your game or pull you down. And we just need to give thought to that. This past week, Thursday night, I got caught in traffic driving an hour and a half west to go to an event. And uh, I knew the traffic was going to be bad, but I was going there to see a friend, 25 years, a mentor to me, and uh, I have driven, I probably, every six months I would drive two to three hours to get lunch with this guy. One way I would drive two to three hours to get lunch with this way. And I always thought it was a little odd, but I just recognized this guy helps me raise my game. I need people like this in my life to, to call me up and, and to, 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 to push me forward. We need wise friends. Now, we obviously can't, with a couple thousand people, figure out who the wisest friend you've got is and help you with that. Although, there are two things we're very proactive about in this series. First of all, we want you in a small group because collectively, right, collectively we've got a better chance of being wise. Additionally, we've, we've asked uh, pastoral staff, elders, uh, soul care people to clear their schedules to the extent that they can so that we can offer to those of you who would like it a chance to sit down with somebody for an hour and talk about your life where you're at, what's working, maybe what's not working. Maybe you feel like things are going pretty well, but you're wondering if there's another 5% you could get. Maybe you feel like you've been stalled spiritually for 20 years. So we're just coming up. There's an opportunity. You can sign up in the lobby. You can sign up online. Coming up, there's an opportunity for you to, to just meet confidentially with someone who's just going to listen to you talk and then say, okay, here's what I would reflect back to you. Here's some next steps that I want to suggest you take. And then the third thing, and this is where we end, is uh, the third thing the Bible tells us to do to get wisdom is to ask for it. In James 1, that's what we're told, is to pray. So please, again, hear this. Don't, don't outthink this. I mean, at one level, this is all very simple. Everything we do, everything we do, where we eat, what we do on a Sunday afternoon, whether you're watching a TV show, taking a walk, what you're watching, if you're watching something, the books that you're reading, everything that we do is shaping us in some way or another. It is making us better or not. And, and whatever we're doing makes doing that again more likely. And so this is just saying, okay, look, if we want to change the trajectory, then there are things that we can do to become wise. We can consider the long-term perspective of who we are and the fact that we're going to live forever and what we're going to wish we had done on the other side of the grave and do that. It's Bible study, right? It's hanging out with people whose lives we admire who are calling us forward. It's praying and interacting with God and asking for insight. So we don't have to outthink this stuff. It's relatively simple. So uh, I want to encourage you to go deep. And I'm going to close our time by uh, corporately praying that uh, God would give us wisdom. So 
Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus asking for insight and wisdom. Your word instructs us to come to you. You are the source of wisdom. You are divine wisdom. And so we do come. We're not just asking for the wisdom of of mankind. We're asking for divine insight, divine wisdom. We want that, and we want the strength to carry it out. We um, We want to see things more clearly. We want to see people and situations more as you do. And we want... Uh, an understanding and the grit and the resolve to do the right thing. We want our inner lives to be ordered and strong enough to help us live wisely in a culture that is often not wise. Guide us to that end. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.